leftovers. Leftovers. I don't know about you, but I generally like leftovers. Gene had a thumbs down. Now, I get it because certain things don't reheat very well, do they? <laughs> they just don't. <laughs> as much as we want to keep them around, <laughs> have them again, they just don't. But there are certain things that I think, uh, you know, with an encore performance, I think <laughs> they really are good. It's kind of a welcome treat. Um, but if you had a very special guest coming over to your house for dinner, you wouldn't serve that person leftovers, would you? You wouldn't pull out all the con plastic containers, open up the tin foil, right? And you, you wouldn't get that out and pop it in the microwave or turn the oven on and try to reheat things. You wouldn't do that. And, and why not? Why wouldn't you do that? Because even though some leftovers can be delicious, that person is worthy of something better. That person is worthy of something better. In the scriptures, there's a word that represents the exact opposite of leftovers. It's the word first fruits. First fruits. In ancient Israel, during both the spring festival and the summer festival, the Israelites only had three festivals when you boil it all down, spring, summer, and fall. Now, within those festivals, there's like a series of little <laughs> holy days. But in the spring festival, which was the barley harvest, and the summer festival, which was associated with the wheat harvest, God's people in the Old Testament, through the law that was given to Moses, were instructed to bring that first bushel, that first, those first fruits to God's sanctuary as an offering. Why did they do this? It was a way to acknowledge that God had provided that for them, right? He wasn't getting the leftovers of what he had provided. He was getting the very first bunch, right? It was honoring him as provider. It was honoring him as Lord. Why was he getting this? Because he was absolutely worthy of that first portion. He was absolutely worthy of the freshest cut. He was absolutely worthy of the very, very best. Thus, it was King Solomon who took this principle that was right there in the law, and he taught it to his son and to those who read the book of Proverbs as a general rule for living your life to the glory of God. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. Honor Yahweh with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. What a principle for us to live by is to, God, to give God the very best, to acknowledge that what we have is from him and that he deserves the very best. But I think that we could also say this about such first fruits. I think we could also say this. Take a look on the screen. First fruits were also that set apart portion that testified of more to come in light of God's abundant generosity. 
first fruits were that set apart portion that testified of, a, of more to come in light of God's abundant generosity. Now, keep that statement in mind as we look together at our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23. As we wrap up our month-long meditation on the importance of Easter, let me suggest one more reason that Easter should always be your favorite day of the year. This is reason number four. Reason number four, Easter should be your favorite day because it's the day your future glory was embodied and ensured. Easter was the day that you, your personal, your future glory was embodied and ensured. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is emphasizing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23. After, in the previous verses, having his readers think about the futility of faith in Jesus, had Jesus not been raised from the dead, he goes on to encourage them with these words. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. We don't have to conjecture about hypotheticals what, if, if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He, in fact, has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, one man, came death, by a man, one man, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, did you hear? Did you see? Right? Did you see that word there? Not once, but twice in our passage. Paul is talking about firstfruits. There in verse 20, also in verse 23, first fruits. Notice how he's using the word here. Paul can talk about Jesus being the first fruits because of his resurrection. Because his resurrection was like that set apart portion that testifies of more to come in light of God's abundant generosity. What was or is this more to come? It is that harvest of life that will take place when those who belong to Christ are resurrected to eternal life with God. That is the more to come. That harvest. In the end, when Christ returns. So Paul is using this Old Testament image, right? His Old Testament sacrificial offering, agricultural image of the first fruits, he's using it to describe not only what had happened, the resurrection of Jesus, but what will happen. Resurrection, like Jesus, because of Jesus, for those who belong to Jesus. Your resurrection, if you belong to Jesus. Because we are talking about Jesus 
and we are talking about the purposes of our sovereign God, we can say that the historical certainty of what did take place gives us solid, grounded, unshakable hope in terms of the certainty of what will take place. Do you believe that this morning? Just as true as that historical fact is of Christ's resurrection from the dead, you are guaranteed resurrection because of him. It will happen. We will one day around the throne, one day be glorifying God, looking back on the historical certainty of our resurrection because it did take place just as surely as his took place. Do all die in Adam, as verse 22 states? Absolutely. We live with that awful reality every day. We were just praying in light of that. We have a time after our service this morning in light of that. All die in Adam through that one man. It's an undeniable fact about our human existence that it comes to an end, at least existence in this body. But if that's true of us in Adam, then the promise of resurrection in Christ is equally true. Just as it's tr as true and real and you can see it, that people are dying, that we die, it's equally true that we will live in Christ. You see, Easter is not simply about Jesus' personal victory over death. It is about that, absolutely. That's the rock, that's the foundation. But it's also about you sharing in that victory. But as Paul wrote, each in his own order right? Each in his own order. So when an Israelite brought an offering of first fruits to God's tent or God's temple, it was a tangible sign. You could touch it. You could feel it. You could burn it. You could eat it. It was a tangible sign of that, that an abundant harvest was imminent in that man's field, in that family's fields. It would only be a matter of hours or days before the reaping began or was finished. Brothers and sisters, friends, that's the time in which we live today. The harvest is imminent. We are living between the first fruits and the conclusion of the harvest. Right? That's the time period that we live in. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, is the tangible sign that an abundant harvest is imminent. And so if you belong to Jesus by God's grace through genuine faith, then that harvest will be a resurrection like that which Jesus experienced. A resurrection to life and glory rather than a resurrection to judgment and eternal destruction. And so, believer, follower of Jesus, on Easter, on that first day of the week, Jesus Christ embodied your future glory. He gave you a preview of your future glory glory. He, he gave you that glimpse into your eternity. 
your eternal state. As Paul wrote in verse 49 of this chapter, drop down to verse 49, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He writes, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Right? We're made like Adam, our father, in the image of God, but we will fully bear the image of God when we are like Jesus Christ, the man of heaven. So, Again, our future, what does that mean? It means our future will not involve an eternally formless existence as a spirit in some spiritual dimension. That is not God's eternal plan for you. That is a temporary thing for you. And we look forward to the day to be, that we are with Christ after this life. But when the end comes, God's eternal purposes stand. God's eternal purposes will be inaugurated. And that doesn't mean you as a disembodied spirit floating around in heaven forever. That is not what the Bible teaches. We will be like Jesus. We will be resurrected like him. Like Jesus, we will have a body, one that is made for both eternal fellowship with God and an eternal existence in a new heavens and a new earth. As I expressed in another message, like the first basket full of produce from a soon-to-be-harvested field, Jesus' victory over death gives us a taste of what will be ours one day. It gives us that taste when we see Him. So that transformation will take place. That transformation is yours because of Jesus Christ. Remember, what we said, his victory both embodied and ensured that transformation. His work on the cross in your place because of God's wrath on you. When he took that place, in himself dying, he destroyed the power of death over us. And then the final say was his victory over death and rising from the dead. And so he purchased, he made that possible for us, his victory. Does that comfort you, brother or sister? Does it encourage you? How about this? Does what I just described thrill you? Does it thrill your heart? Oh, it should, shouldn't it? It absolutely should. And to the degree that it doesn't, we're hardened, we're callous, we're distracted, we're too conformed to this world. To the degree that it doesn't thrill us when we hear about this. When we are comfortable in this life, the more comfortable we are in this life, the less we yearn for the life to come. The less we hunger for it. God's word is always doing a perpetual work to re re reveal to us our true condition that it would shake us loose from our apathy. That it would shake us loose from our stupor. That it would shake us loose and help us to realize that in this life, we should be looking to the life to come. We should be yearning for it and, and freeing us from those things where we find comfort, looking to things in this life that we should be finding in God and his eternal purposes. But this transformation that we're talking about this morning, this transformation is bigger 
than just your body. I love how James expressed it in another letter of the New Testament. James expressed it using the same Old Testament image. Look what James said. He said, of his own will, he, the Father, brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of what? First fruits of his creatures. There's our word, isn't it? There's our same word. We this time will be the kinds of first fruits of creation. We will be, we are the first fruits of his creatures. So the coming transformation not only includes all of those redeemed, it includes all of creation. And in another passage, Paul really unpacks this more than James does here. Look at this. This is from Romans chapter 8. Listen to what Paul says about this coming transformation. Starting and anchored in our, anchored of course in Christ's resurrection, but then referencing related to our resurrection because of Christ. Paul writes this, Romans chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us, sons and daughters of God, children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. What does he mean there? The redemption of our bodies. Did you hear that word again? First fruits. It's right there in verse 23. First fruits. Paul tells us that the present gift of the Holy Spirit for everyone who believes, who trusts in Christ, is that set apart portion that testifies of more to come in light of God's abundant generosity. The Holy Spirit in you tells you there's more to come. It tells you that God is going to bless you with a harvest of much, much more. What is that more to come? It's right there in the final phrase of our passage. The redemption of our bodies. Wow. So both the resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit are first fruits that serve to point us to our own bodily resurrection to eternal life. Isn't that awesome? That historical reality of Christ raised from the dead and the present reality of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, manifesting himself in your life are both evidences that point us toward, that should point us towards the resurrection of your body through Christ. But did you hear what else Paul told us in this passage? He told us the heaven and earth in which we live is now waiting for our transformation. Why is that? 
Because when we are finally and fully transformed, the rest of creation will be transformed along with us. There's that harvest, that imminent harvest that will encompass all of creation. It will be, verse 21, set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And again, Jesus is the first fruits of that transformation. Why is that? Because of Easter. Because of his resurrection from the dead. So, think about the implications of these staggering truths. These are kind of mind-blowing truths that you kind of stop and go, well, I've heard this before. I don't give it a lot of thought. I'm, I'm wrestling with it now. It's big. It's huge. Wow, big theological ideas. But those mean nothing unless they, right, they are distilled down into your life and your heart and your mind. God wants those realities to transform you. Let me suggest three ways that he wants to do that. First of all, real hope, let's put it this way, real hope comes from that glimpse of the glory. Real hope comes from that glimpse of the glory. It's like this. It's like being held in a prison cell for many, many years. Can you imagine? Every day, caged in, every day in a dark, dank cell. It's like being held in a prison cell for many, many years and then one day being taken to a beautiful seaside villa. At this villa, you witness three things. First, many other ex-cons living free and fulfilled lives in this beautiful setting. Second, you witness a room as you pass by with your name on it. And number three, you witness the signing of a contract that guarantees your place there. In only a matter of months, you will be there. However many weeks you would have to wait until your release, that day you visited there, that day you saw what awaited you. That day you knew your future was secure. That day would be your favorite day of all days. That day would be your favorite day. That day would give you hope. It would carry you through on even the hardest days. Sitting in that cell. Dealing with the difficulties of your present circumstances that day would carry you through. The same should be true for us. Though it may be longer than weeks or months, brothers and sisters, the harvest is coming. It is coming. We've glimpsed it in Jesus, the first fruits. That has to give us hope. That preview in him, that glimpse in him has to give us hope for even the hardest days in this life. Do you need that hope this morning, friend? Do you need that hope? Well, God wants to direct your attention as he's been doing this morning to Christ risen, raised, triumphant over death.
a preview of your future glory. Now, in light of the perspective God has revealed to us this morning, I think he might also be saying this. Number two, live more in light of who you will be than who you are today. Live more in light of who you will be than you, who you are today. That statement is, would not be popular on social media probably. <laughs> it, goes, it goes smack, it just runs contrary to the modern ethos about who you are today and accepting yourself and celebrating yourself and all of that, you know, the, 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 the mantra of expressive individualism. But this is biblical. Live more in light of who you will be than who you are today. Now, that statement is not meant to minimize all that we have in Christ right now. It's not meant to minimize our identity in Jesus in the present. It is meant to enhance that and fulfill that with a broader biblical perspective than just the here and now. It's meant to point us to the goal or the conclusion of God's work in us. It is very easy to focus only on the here and now, on today's struggles, on one's present experience of God's work, but then miss the comfort, the inspiration that God wants us to draw from the fact that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. God's given us that picture today, right, of who we will be in light of the risen Jesus. Live more in light of that. So on those days when we are crying out, when you are crying out for change, God wants the reality of that promised transformation to carry us forward in those times. As we look to his power to accomplish that, not our own. That's what we need. That's the perspective we need, brothers and sisters. Finally, real quickly, number three, we need to embrace the groaning embrace the groaning. <laughs> That's a new bumper sticker, right? For the church. Embrace the groaning. And by that, I do not mean the grumbling. I do not mean the complaining. Right? We, we do way too much of that already. We tolerate way too much of that. Right? We coddle way too much of that. We, call, we euphemize way too much of that. I'm venting. Blah, blah, blah. No, no grumbling, no complaining, but the groaning is something to embrace. What am I talking about? Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. He talked about, he said, like creation itself, we too are groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for that day when Christ returns. That day when the full purposes of God are worked out in our midst in real time here in history. So what does it mean that we are groaning as we eagerly await? I believe it means this. I believe that it means that every, inside every true child of God, there is a deep longing for holiness. And yet, we live in an unholy world. 
within every true child of God, there is a deep longing for God's glory. And yet we still wrestle with seeking our own glory. Within every true child of God, there is a deep longing for peace and rest in God's presence. And yet we live in a restless world filled with the noise of human rebellion. And so we groan. We groan. We're exasperated with holy exasperation. There is the deep sigh within us. That's welling up because of the Holy Spirit. It's the rub of the age to come in us, the age that is to come within us, rubbing against the present age and our present experience. That kind of holy exasperation needs to be acknowledged and embraced. Why? Because the groaning points you to the glory. Do you get that? The groaning points you to the glory. Don't dismiss the groaning. Don't try to tamp it down. Don't look for a cure for the groaning out in the world that is causing the groaning. Don't accept solutions that try to minimize the groaning or get rid of the groaning. No, embrace it. Because when you do, you inevitably be pointed to the glory. Right? The glory that God has for us. It's the glory that inspires hope, isn't it? Like we heard about. It's the glory that helps you live more in light of who you will be than who you are today. These all work together. All three of those points work together. Embrace the groaning, brothers and sisters. Hope, glory, transformation, all ours because of Jesus. All ours because of Easter. Think about what we've seen over this past month. We talked about Easter and liberation being set free from slavery under the fear of death by the one who beat death. We talked about Easter and validation, living each day in light of the resurrection's powerful testimony of Jesus Christ as Lord. We talked about Easter and mediation, the reassuring reality that we have and always will have, an eternal mediator in the presence of God. And we talked this morning about Easter and transformation Not only will you and I share in the resurrection of glory of Jesus, but we will do so in a purged and perfect universe. And so I ask you, in light of those incredible truths, how could Easter not be your favorite day? (laughs) How could it not be? Everything's hinged on that, right? On Christ's resurrection from the dead. And as we talked about this morning, the glimpse that we were given of our future glory. 
of our future freedom, of our future transformation. Let's ask God even now to strengthen us with this perspective. Not only this morning's, but this whole month. Let's ask God to strengthen us with this perspective that our favorite day would radically shape our day-to-day, that we would learn more about what that looks like, we would learn more to meditate on the things that we've heard and let our favorite day shape our day-to-day. And if you are listening to my voice today and you have, truly, you have never truly put your hope in Christ alone, then talk with God. In a few minutes, talk with God about that very thing. You've heard all that He wants to offer you through Christ. He offers it freely. The only cost is that you give your life to Him and allow Christ to be Lord of your life, to redeem you. He is inviting you this morning to experience the pardon, the power, the peace that Easter, that the resurrection of Jesus makes possible. Will you respond to Him today? May all of us respond in light of what God's Word has reminded us of this morning, the way it's pulled back the veil even more to, to stir us up by way of reminder that we would see the future glory that Christ died and rose again to obtain for us. Let's go to prayer. Let's